0: Okay, so let's let's start this by by introducing ourselves <clears throat> um, and what this thing is about. Um, so I'll I'll start as the host, I guess. Sure. Um, so my name is Tovia Molden. Uh, I am a student of uh, computational neuroscience um, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Um, I'm, a, I'm a PhD student. I'm doing research. Uh, specifically, um, I'm doing research in um, plasticity, uh, the biological basis of learning. Um, and this is a project. I don't I don't really know uh, what it will turn into, how long it will go. Uh, but I have a lot of different interests, including science, philosophy, religion, politics. Um, and I want to uh, interview people who I think um, are, are subject experts and have a- interesting things to say, um, and just have like a long-form conversations, um, as is the format in a number of other successful podcasts, uh, and just um, see where things develop. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what I'll reveal about myself for now. Um, and now, uh, introduce yourself. Whatever you want to tell.
1: Uh, so, well, uh, I said that my name is George Sanchez, and I'm a poet, uh, I'm a teacher, and uh, uh, those are the things that I spend a lot of time doing, uh, as well as studying Talmud, which is, uh, all the time I study more and more, which is, um, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's a healthy addiction to have in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of uh, negative repercussions, other than making you strange.
0: I see. Um, okay, so for the purposes um, of this podcast, so let's just um, uh, start out with the fact that our, our relationship is the fact that you were my school English teacher um, at Skokia Shiva when I was a junior in high school.
1: Um, I think you were a senior. member that far back. I assume you I think,
0: oh, you're right. I was a senior. Yeah. That makes more
1: sense. It does, doesn't
0: um, it? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I guess um, I want to I want to focus on on the education aspect. you um, Describe briefly uh, your career um, in teaching.
1: Sure. Um, so um, after undergrad. Um, And I graduated from college in 2000. Um, A year later, I went to graduate school uh, and I received a degree in English and creative writing, um, part of which uh, involved um, learning some pedagogy and becoming a teacher uh, of English. And when I graduated, uh, I came back to Chicago Uh, where I'd done my undergrad at Loyola and I got a job teaching um, at Loyola, uh, college level writing. And through a series of weird opportunities, um, I ended up teaching at um, a Jewish high school at Ida Crown Jewish Academy uh, uh, on behalf of Loyola. Uh, Loyola paid me. Um, but I was on, um, the Ida Crown campus, uh, teaching a college level writing class to the seniors there. Um, and that put me in contact with people who were in a position to offer me a job at the Skokie Yeshiva, uh, where, uh, still to this day, I've taught longer at the Yeshiva than anywhere else, than any other single place. And, um, After I taught at the Yeshiva, I spent a year teaching at um, a school on the south side of Chicago called Mount Carmel High School. It's an all boys Catholic school. And uh, after that year, I taught for a few years um, at a community college, uh, also teaching English, but I also taught uh, non-Western humanities. And then uh, that brings us to my most, my current uh, job, which I've been in for five years, uh, and that's at Elgin Academy, which is a 182-year-old um, co-educational uh, independent school in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Uh
0: huh. Um. So, you've you've taught at a, at a bunch of different places. Uh. And and you've taught you've taught at both um, religious schools and secular schools or non-explicitly religious schools.
1: Yeah,
0: correct. Aljin, um, is that is that a public school or a private school?
1: No, it's actually it's what's called an independent school. Um, <clears throat> most of the time, when people think of private schools, they think of uh, what's better referred to as parochial schools, um, private schools that have a religious foundation and mission. Um, and that are usually set up by uh, some sort of religious authority or have some sort of uh, affiliation with a specific religious community. Um, Independent schools um, are basically private schools that have a self-perpetuating board of trustees. Uh, In other words, a group of people at some point in history decided to uh, start a school. And this school is responsible to no one uh, with the exception of the Board of Trustees who sets budgets, um, mission statements, uh, decides when the school year ends and begins, et cetera. Uh, and there are religious schools that are independent schools, but um, the school I teach at, Elgin Academy, uh, has never had a religious affiliation. Uh, it has always been uh, co-educational. Uh, and it is, it was founded in um, 1839. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's actually the oldest non-religious co-ed school, not on the East Coast of the United States.
0: Gotcha. That's really cool. Um, so, uh, Let's see. Let's see the the direction um, that we should take this year. I guess I'm. I, I want to. I, I want to the, uh, get towards the direction of um, sort of your educational philosophy and and in terms of what do you think valuable for students to learn uh, and why do you think that those things are valuable to learn uh, and and then I I want to. Ed- at some point, touch on the on the religious aspects. What do you think the values are of, um, let's say re- religious values uh, from an educational standpoint, and the comparison between teaching in a in a secular school and a religious school. Um, but let's 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 first start with, with generally um, what what sort of things do you do you try to emphasize um, when you teach? Because at least I remember remember that uh, high school class you had uh, you had uh, I think a relatively wide berth in the things that you were um, able to teach us it wasn't like that there was some some intense state mandated curriculum and so we did some philosophy we read some essays um, uh, i I don't remember all of the things we did um, but you you seem to have some sort of uh, or a set of messages that you were trying to convey. Um, so maybe you can you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um, while while we didn't have uh, a state mandated state mandated curriculum, um, the class that you were in was an AP English Language class, which it's a different sort of curriculum in the sense that uh, a school that decides to offer this class uh, and the students who then take it um, are in fact um following a curriculum that is set up by the college board uh the idea behind that curriculum is that it will prepare them to on a um usually on a Wednesday in May to uh demonstrate that they have gained the requisite skills and experience that is equivalent to one to two semesters of college freshman english Um, but that's, that's just it, right, is while US history, AP or AP government is basically like a big pile of content that the test will then, you know, ask you to be familiar with, uh, the, the language and composition, uh, curriculum is really about a set of skills Um, a set of ability, uh, uh, the ability to interact with texts and ideas in a certain way. So yeah, I did have a lot of latitude, um, but it it really is mainly a nonfiction sort of essay based class. Um, That being said, um, my, my educational philosophy is in part a response to what I know students are learning in other classes. That is to say, um, I think that rightly or wrongly, a lot of classes are uh, anti-discursive, right? They, they don't uh, have a explorational... Sorry. Yeah. Could, could, could you just repeat that and maybe all... What do you want me to repeat? You're you're breaking up a bit too. The video. Will help. You want me to turn um, my video off? I, I'll I'll turn it off. Yeah. That'll
0: help. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully. Hopefully,
1: hopefully. Le- hopefully less data will will uh, will enable it to be smoother. So, what do you want me to repeat?
0: Um. So you, you you said you said that your class exist in other classes um so so yeah so repeat everything that came after that
1: uh you you broke up a little too so so i think you're asking me to repeat um the way i teach based on the way what i know is happening in other classes you want me to right okay so so i find and again i'm not i'm not judging the rightness or wrongness necessarily, uh, of the way other teachers do it. But I, I do find that it's hard for, um, for, let me take a step back in my experience. Most classes at the high school level are non-discursive. Um, they, they focus on a particular, um, set of activities or skills Uh, And the understanding of what that skill is, is not as important as demonstrating that you can do it. And as a consequence, I feel that that's really limiting. And the way I teach nowadays is that I want to emphasize that the... The classroom that I envision and that I try to promote is a place of exploration. Um, it's a place where if you are using language uh, and your critical thinking to explore a topic, we are on topic, right? Um, that if you are interacting with language and you are trying to understand something in a rigorous uh, and intellectually honest way, then that's really what I want students to try to focus on. Uh, because in the end, whether we're dealing with uh, any topic, that's the way we interact with each other and with content. Um, you know we we have to explain ourselves, we have to explain our biases, we have to, uh, explore other people's biases. Uh, we have to uh, understand what's come before us. Uh, we have to understand what, where people are going. and The more skilled we are at exploring those questions and finding answers through language, um, the better off we will be. The second thing I try to encourage students to do is to really try to understand themselves. Uh, One thing that I often tell students when they wonder, why is it that we're reading Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, or why are we um, reading Voltaire? And I tell them that as useful and as interesting as I find things like the unit circle, or uh, language acquisition, or the American Civil War, when one is up at night at 2am wondering why their child is sick or why their spouse has died or what they're going to do to put food on the table in a time of economic stress all those other things pre-calculus u.s history learning french will not help them at 2am but understanding themselves uh, understanding their values, understanding what it is they want to do with their lives and in the world, I hope will help them. And so, those are the those are the two basic things that I try to do in my classroom.
0: Okay. Um, so that's um, that's that's interesting. I, I sort of wonder, just to your last point. Um, about, about the extent to which, uh, um, doing, uh, in the way that, that you said and having, um, that kind of discourse is really beneficial in some, uh, emotional, psychological sense when you're going up in your life. Um, in other words, it, it might be, but it might not be, right? So if you were if you were to sort of survey all of the, um, you know, really eloquent, articulate, um, smart people in the sense in the sense of being able to use language, uh, and then determine whether whether or not they have let's say a higher rate of depression or anxiety or they're better able to deal with it, um, I'm in- not sure what you'll find in other words I, I'm not I'm not certain that being able to engage with with things and speak and write in an um, on on a high level really has any relationship to a person's ability to to cope with um, adversity uh,
1: I agree with simplicity. you I agree with you maybe maybe yeah. I need to be a little clearer um, you can have a very high um, level of Linguistic ability, verbal ability, uh, and not have interacted with uh, ideas that uh, ask ask the participant in class to think about what is right and wrong uh, what are the values that they affiliate with uh what are the problems with other stances um, and we do that through exploring literature, whether it's uh, you know, fiction or essays or looking at philosophy. Um, linguistic or verbal ability is not enough. I agree with you, uh, but that's where the the actual content of the courses comes in. right That's why when when someone says, "Why did we read Camus?" or "Why did we read Antigone?" I can say, "Well, th- these texts, feature people who are struggling with the difficulties in life. And the question becomes, how would you do so? Uh, Did these people make bad decisions? Why were they bad decisions? So that if someone has developed, not necessarily discursive ability, but rather they have really wrestled for long periods of time with questions of their own values, of the way the world works, the way the world should work, the way the world should not work. That is what might help them um, when they encounter crises later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
0: at 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 the risk of uh, being
1: attacked by uh,
0: by pitchfork mobs, um, how how familiar are you with the uh, with the work of Jordan Peterson?
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not terribly uh, familiar with it in the sense that um, I think that there are people who have probably read um, a lot of his work um, and uh, seen him on his various, you know, uh, appearances that, have, that many of which have been recorded and disseminated online. Um, but I'm, I'm not I'm not terribly familiar with him in any kind of detailed way.
0: Okay, because it's just because the, the things that you're saying remind me a lot of um, of his sort of perspective on a lot of things also. So he's coming from the direction of, um, of psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are – people have issues with him for various reasons I, that I won't get into, but in terms of I think the, the major themes of uh, what he talks about is that um, he is a strong – believer in this idea of um, uh, let's say building or self offering right building building yourself as as a person who is powerful and who uh, uh, you know has goals and wants to accomplish something in life um, and triumphing through adversity and actually one of the major um, uh, literary that he uses to address um, a lot, a long lecture series on um, about uh, sort of the the deep psychological ideas that are in the Bible um, and how they can they can help people sort of understand their um, uh, the the challenges that they face and understand uh, sort of what the proper orientation that they should find in in life is um, and and I, I personally, uh, you know, I, I find it very, very appealing, both from a psychological perspective. You know, being a neuroscientist and a person who does, who has some background in understanding uh, how the brain works, and also from the biblical standpoint, because uh, you know, I, I was educated in the Jewish education system for uh, too long—20 uh, <laughs> years or something like that. Um, so that approach does appeal to me but there's also uh the flip side of that which is um so I, I read this book um that I I wrote a, a review of on my blog by by Bertrand Russell called uh, On the Conquest of Happiness. Hmm. Um and he has a he has a, a number of very like funny cynical lines in there. Um but one of them he basically says that like the people who um, who become sort of obsessed with uh, philosophy and and um, especially like a moral philosophy are people like whose mommies didn't hug them enough and because they didn't have enough like emotional comfort at home they're looking for uh, for something that will give them that same son- sense of like comfort and confidence and and surety but in fact it's just sort of a um, uh, a band aid for uh, not having the right sort of emotional psychological environment when they were young. Um, he says it kind of tongue in cheek, uh, so I don't I don't know like how seriously to take it. But if there, if there, um, if there if there is something, there there is something there that uh, uh, yeah like there definitely is. There's variability in personality um and so th- th- it there might be there, not, there might be some people who just because they were born less neurotic uh will just always have an easier time than a person who is who has spent time doing uh this discursive stuff and self-exploration and confidence building um and and whatever you call it um that's not that's not to say that it that doing all these things isn't valuable, wouldn't be valuable for everyone, in that to some degree it, it helps build them up. Um, uh, but there's there's also maybe a sense in which um, these are all sort of uh, trying to trying to medicate and fix uh, some sort of like deeper. Uh, psychological insecurity or some mismatch between uh, evolutionarily who we are supposed to be and, and the modern world. Um, So, yeah, I I don't, (laughs) I don't know exactly where, where I'm going with this, Um, but. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I can
1: respond to, to what you're saying. Um, And. Uh I mean I think I mean I think that we I'm going to I'm going to make a meta statement um and uh and that meta statement is that different times in human history have different horizons uh meaning that there are certain ways of looking at the world that certain ideas and events somewhat force people to adopt. What do I mean? People who were alive uh, and conscious of what was going on on September 11th, 2001 in the United States, uh, people living in the United States, they, their horizon was changed for some period of time. Uh, they became very concerned with security, safety, et cetera. And one of the things I tell students is that, uh, you know, philosophers whose popularity uh, has been significant change the horizons of of the way we think. And I, th- I think that Freud, and I'm not, I don't, I don't. Affiliate with Freud in in particular, but I think that the rise of psychology in the West in the last century has really made us think that when we do things like go to school, learn to play nice with others, etc., we're somehow medicating problems that we're born with. And I would I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I would agree with Jordan Peterson on the grounds that we must author ourselves. Uh, we, the, the reason that cultures before the 20th century had some of the practices that they did, whether they're religious or cultural, intellectual uh, or otherwise, understood that if you don't shape people in a certain way, they will malfunction after a certain period of time. Um, that is why monasteries exist. That is why uh, uh, holidays exist. That's why mythologies exist. That's why people wrote things like the Epic of Gilgamesh or Pilgrim's Progress or the Bible. It's that human beings, and and you're a cognitive neuroscientist, you're a computational neuroscientist, so you may disagree with this, but I think that one of the things that the human mind seems to do is it seems to recognize patterns very well. Uh, It seems to have a a skill at that. And if people are not helped in making sense of these patterns in some way, I think they end up making weird, uh, unhealthy conclusions uh, about those patterns and whether maybe in the 20th and 21st centuries we think of education moral education as being um you know remedial it being medicative uh and that's fine um but then what that suggests is that human beings are fundamentally kind of flawed that that they are born or they will inevitably develop certain ailments um, of, a, of a psycho-emotional nature. And that's true if you if you have value-neutral education. I think that the reason why religious education was so common for such a long time is that it gave values that people could help that could help people shape their, the way their minds worked and the way that they evaluated the patterns of life and the problems that they encountered. And I wonder if secular education, because of its emphasis on being value neutral for such a long time, is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Because, if, because if you if your mind works all the time, but you don't have any input, any help to f- figure out what is better and what is worse, just what things are. I think I think most people become overwhelmed and they develop coping mechanisms because the world is a strange and confusing and complicated place. And values are the only things or or the only thing I know of that can really help us make sense of that strange, confusing, complicated place.
0: Okay. Um, so, so first of all, I'll say that uh, you know, from a from a neuroscience standpoint, uh, you know, certainly neuroscientists do not believe that any. Well, for for the most part, um, most complex behaviors that you observe, especially in social contexts. Uh, we presume our are, are in interaction between uh, gene and environment. Now, this is you know sort of sort of baseline, right? So there is no there is no nature nurture debate. It's a question of how much how much variance you can explain by each component, and usually, uh, you know, there's there's a bit of each, um, and uh, yeah. So I. I this is a little, a little bit off topic, but I was actually, I was recently at a, a workshop at the university about the social behavior of bees um, with this guy, Gene Robinson, who apparently pioneered uh, doing the behavioral genetics of bees. Um, and he found that he could explain however much variance in bee social behavior by uh, by their, um, their genetic profile, but also you could take like a uh, bee from one colony and raise it in another colony, and they would also adopt some of the behaviors of the new colony um, while maybe still retaining some of the um, innate behaviors that they had from uh, their, their genetics. Um, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of complexity there. Uh, i I think the claim that you made about people needing to be brought up uh, in a value system um, is interesting. Uh, it It may be true. like i I, I do think that um, we are probably evolved uh, because we're we're social animals and have been social uh, for um, well, for much of our evolutionary, yes, I mean uh, many slash most primates are at least uh, somewhat social, whether you want to go to the chimpan- chimpanzees or bonobos or orangutans. Um, but humans especially, uh, for however long humans have been around and have had language, um, you know, we've, we've lived in these very complex societies where we've... Um, developed uh, cultures and meme plexes where ideas have been conveyed from generation to generation. Uh, and it's possible that this is that uh, that over evolutionary timescales, uh, in fact, this has sort of become a necessary part of our operating system, that it's just sort of uh, assumed or, or expected that over the course of your life, but especially um, in childhood and early adulthood, that there will be people in your culture who are transmitting to you messages of how you are supposed to behave in that culture. And that if you, if you don't have that, then somehow that, that creates a developmental uh, kind of gap or maladaptation. Um, uh, so that's, that's definitely a, a possibility. Uh, and then there's there's also a possibility that um, which is I I guess a, a related but different theory is that there is such a thing as as human nature and that if you uh, if you raise a, a human without giving them any sort of uh, value system whatsoever um, they won't be crippled like in a biological sense but but it will simply be their behavior will simply be maladaptive to a social setting. Um, Right. So if you if you don't give give someone any moral instruction, so it might be that they'll uh, say they'll be very prone to anger and murder someone who who they get into a fight with or, um, you know, lots of lots of things of of that nature, which we see we see all sorts of violent uh, antisocial behavior among animals, including our our closest uh, relatives in in the animal kingdom, and including, right, among humans, you know, when we go to war and commit crimes and things like that. Uh, So all of these uh, uh, instincts to engage in antisocial behavior are there, and and what really tips the scale between whether you're going to express them or not is whether... um, you know, you're you're taught not to. <laughs> um.
1: Right, and and I think that we, and I think that there really is a problem with secularism, and that's not to say that I believe we should live in a theocracy, but I think that the the reality that I see is that a secular society. Uh, which has been common in Western countries um, for longer than I think we realize, I think that we associate secularism with uh, you know the twentieth century, but you know when you look at the at the at the disestablishment of religion um, and laws regarding a lot of important freedoms um they stem into the <clears throat> the 19th and 18th centuries and part of the problem is that there i think that a lot of western or western influenced societies and groups think that secular is equivalent to value neutral that that there is uh no place for determining or or saying that we as a culture believe these things are right and wrong. And it's, it's become very difficult nowadays to talk about values. And I think part of it is that we as a society are by and large philosophically crippled by the lack of Philosophical education, moral education, ethical education early in life.
0: Okay, um, so so first of all, I, I want to just just to, to clarify when you're talking about um, things in in the in twentieth century uh, relating to the eighteenth the and nineteenth century. So, so, are are you referring to like um, Hitler and Stalin and things like that?
1: They, I mean, they're they're just a symptom of mm-hmm. of what happened.
0: But you're you're talking about right, right? Like, I, like I I think correct me if I'm wrong, but you're 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 talking about the sort of the 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 Nietzschean problem, right? Of of God being dead, and and what what do you create in its place? Correct. Uh, and uh, and if you yeah, like if you if you don't have a sort of Tradition, like you do within religious contexts, then sort of any any kind of ideology can uh, can fill its place. And those ideologies, um, uh, I mean, look the 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 value of having uh, to some degree that they've that they've stood the test of time. Um, Right, so. You, you sort of have an assurance that even though, let's say, um, well, uh, yeah, it, it's really, it, it's hard, it's hard to talk about uh, religions in a, in a very positive sense because we know how much damage that they have done. But 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 there's also a sense in which the amount of damage that they do, uh, like we know the scope of it in a sense. Um, <laughs> like, uh yeah i yeah i don't i don't know if that's that's really true either. i i think that judaism is the, is the best example um right cuz judaism uh has been a relatively um morally tame religion for for most of its history at least since since uh, you know the conquest of the land of israel um back in uh you know 2000 or 1000 BC or whenever it was 1500. Um, and of course now, now we have, uh, the state of Israel where people that, you know, which is my current country where people are again, um, uh, you know, making claims about the moral behavior of the Jewish people through the agency of, of the state, um, which is a a separate question. Um, uh, but, there there is a sense in which if you have like a tradition with it which is thousands of years old so if it survived that long presumably there is some aspect of it which is at least somewhat adaptive um but it's really it's it's hard to Judaism isn't the greatest example because we've we've all we've been this sort of minority uh, oppressed minority population for such a long period of history and then when you look at uh, Christianity and Islam both of them have histories of uh, you know, civil wars and and you know, killing people of other religions. So they might be internally adaptive to some degree for the people within them, um, but not necessarily globally.
1: I think I, th- I, I I I agree, and I also want to take issue with um, with some of what you say, and I'm going to do it almost in the same breath. Meaning, I would I would take issue with. The idea that um, you know, since the conquest of the of the land of Israel um, many millennia ago, uh, that Judaism was somehow morally tame, because you know you have things like Ben Sorero Moré where you where you you kill a child before they have transgressed a capital crime in order, right? To but but you know, so. but.
0: Right, but you know as well as I do, right, that that uh, as far as we know in Rabbinic Judaism, it has never happened. It depends. It depends which view in the Talmud you accept. But either it's that has never been happened, and it's just sort of a you know one of these blue book laws that's in the books, but we don't we don't actually administer it, um, or it happened like once when you know whichever rabbi it was said that they saw it.
1: Well, my uh, my point my point is, le- is less about um, whether or not. That ever happened, and more about how um, it, Judaism is willing to comp- to contemplate um, really horrible things um, being right. possible, yeah, and so- even mo- and even moral imp- being moral imperatives um, but what I was going to what this is why I said in the same breath is that, that is that is the true genius of, of rabbinic Judaism is that it is an inherently adaptive uh, practice. It's an inherently adaptive paradigm. And where things go wrongest in Judaism, and I say this is an outsider, uh, are in precisely the same ways that they go wrong in other religions. That is to say, when we decide that this way, fill in the blank, whatever practice or life um, shape you can, is the way things have always been, right? That is, that is a myth that many religions tell about themselves, right? Many uh, believers in certain religions will say, this is the way it has always been. And that's usually when, you know, the, the, the sectarian wars start, right? When it says, look, 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 this is just a perversion. I got, I got the real style and this is not an adaptation. What I'm introducing, this is a return to origins and you are the ones who have perverted this tradition that that's where problems occur. And I would suggest that by and large, for the last 2,000 years, Judaism has been quite all right with adapting and recognizing that maybe this isn't the way things have always been done, but this is what's working now, and we're going to go with that. And I would say that Christianity and Islam have, and I can say that Christianity for sure, has... uh, Myth upon myth about how things have always been done this way, and the the reality is that it's not, and that that kind of retrenchment is itself its biggest problem right so so i I would say just uh you know
0: having been part of the religious community within Orthodox Judaism for a long time, I would say that that same um it's probably a word. I don't know if fundamentalism is is the right word, um, but this the same sort of um, yeah saying that this is the way that it's always been done definitely has um, manifestations in Judaism within uh, some of the more um, extreme sects, uh, and also it's it's also a question of where you are sort of educationally within Judaism so like if you if you are be, because Judaism has has such a strong emphasis on like le- learning the original texts um, so at a certain point if you're sufficiently educated um, like you know that things have changed <laughs> over the years you know if 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 you are you know approaching the texts and and have half a brain and judaism uh especially orthodox judaism makes an effort to have people um like really really uh, approach the texts and and read them and study them uh and also think critically about them um to one degree or another but there's there's but but,
1: but only only certain people have historically been encouraged to do so right and that's and that's the issue right is that if if all you ever study is Tanakh, it would m- maybe seem to you that things have always been this way. But if you study Talmud, if you study Mishnah, it seems like things have always been this way. Right? But if you study Talmud, you realize how how um how how much change can happen. And that's and that's in some ways the biggest challenge, right? Which is that is that only certain people have been able to see historically that things were never Things weren't always like this.
0: Um, right. I, I mean, in, in Judaism, though, I think that at least at least for men, men have always been encouraged to study Talmud, even if it wasn't uh, feasible for economic or, or other reasons. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it was always encouraged for men Agreed. to get to that point. Agreed. Um, for women... Yeah. For women, it was it was a different story, and and for women, um, unfortunately, until very recently, and, and in fact, it's it's still a you know, major problem within Orthodox Judaism is that women are, are either discouraged explicitly or implicitly, or simply now where there's uh, there's less explicit discouragement, but still the institutional structure doesn't exist for women to study Talmud, and so the messages. That at least some women in the Orthodox community are uh, in the Orthodox Jewish community are getting is more of this, uh, you know, this is how it's always been. When, uh, in fact, if you are f- familiar, sufficiently familiarized with the text of the tradition, you have a more uh, sophisticated, nuanced view of the development of um, of Judaism. Um, but anyway, this is this is all sort of just like a, a side issue, uh, which has been fun. But I, I want to I want to get back to um, what is happening uh, today, especially in, in the U.S., um, which I have to specify because I uh, am now living in Israel. Um, but it, it seems to me from afar and also a little bit when I was in the U.S. that, there is a, a, that this is a period of great um, moral confusion. Uh, in the United States of America, and possibly in in the Western world generally, uh, and uh, I don't I don't mean this just in the sense of the election of President uh, He Who Must Not Be Named, um, but uh, I I think that um, you I I get the sense from reading both mainstream media and seeing um, social media that that there just is a, a vacuum in terms of having um, a concrete value system uh, and as such people are, are getting into fights over political issues and having very strong opinions but these these opinions uh, it's not even clear where they come from in other words if, if I if I see a fundamentalist Christian, uh, arguing, uh, you know, that, um, you know, abortion is murder, at least like I know that they're coming from Christianity. And I I similarly know that, you know, if I, uh, you know, a woman who is in favor of of, um, a woman's right to choose, so she's coming from the liberal feminist tradition. Um, So those are like philosophical Intellectual traditions, which I which I understand, I can trace them, um, and they have a history to them. Um, I mean, I'm I'm curious, but I
1: I, I mean, they have a history to them. But I mean, the idea that abortion was against Christianity—that's a recent idea. Like that, I mean, there there is, there was, I mean, it's clear from the tradition. That when the question about was it okay to take something that would abort a pregnancy and abort a patient, herbs, uh, things like that, um, that it was okay to do that. Um, it, it, with, it came about with the medicalization of pregnancy. Um, and there are sociological texts that I can point you to um, that with the medicalization of pregnancy, that's the only reason why Christ- American Christianity... Um, becomes associated with, with um, you know, uh, you know, anti contraception and anti abortion.
0: Uh huh. Um. Okay.
1: So I I respect
0: that you're. Oh, so I don't think that we we talked about your your sort of religious background hmm. or mine. So maybe maybe let's let's just take a, a couple of minutes to do that. Um. So so because. You were the, the last one to speak about, so maybe maybe sure. you should just give us a – yeah.
1: So, I mean, my, my religious background is that I was, I was raised Roman Catholic um, and uh, in a strain of Roman Catholicism that was pretty pervasive in the 80s and 90s, which is of a socially very progressive um, uh, strain of Catholicism when it came to things like uh, the poor – and those forms of social justice, but that was very uh, conservative in terms of other social aspects like uh, gender and uh, women's rights. Um, and I am um, currently uh, within the Episcopal Church and have been for a long time. Uh, and essentially, uh, what my background is, is that uh, I am, religiously speaking, extremely Traditional in my practice of the religion, but my values are extremely um, liberal and leftward.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and so I I was uh, raised as a, I guess a modern Orthodox Jew, although um, the institutions that I went to, like Skokie Yeshiva, were somewhat more sort of a little bit more right-wing and, and extreme. I had very uh, intensive education in Talmud. Um, I, I studied, I, so I, I finished the entire Babylonian Talmud, I think, by the time I was 22, after uh, doing a Daf so that's a page of eight, for seven and a half years. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm now no longer of the uh, of the Orthodox persuasion. Uh, I'm still Jewish because uh, you know you can never you can never stop being Jewish because Judaism or being Jewish is not strictly a religious designation. Um, I'm uh, now um, not uh, observant in the orthodox sense. Uh, I consider myself agnostic. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that uh, you know certainly the the Jewish tradition that I was brought up with influences my thinking because you know how could you not be influenced by an intellectual tradition that you are steeped in for for 20 years uh, unless <laughs> unless you want to you want to completely sort of uh, you know throw all of all of that information that you have in your brain into the trash so so you, hopefully one would hope that if you have that experience you should retain some of it
1: and and um, and and I I mean the extent of my uh, religious upbringing is that I went to religious institutions for 17 years, mm-hmm. right? So there is a bit of a parallel in terms of uh, how my day-to-day life was within, you know, educational institution that had explicit and pretty intense religious commitments.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so so going back to um, – uh the uh well let, let's let's not go back to the abortion topic because I, sure. I think that that will sidetrack us too much sure um so so uh let, let us take it as a given that um it it is not it is not obvious where contemporary uh Christian abortion views or or it is obvious but it is it is not actually coming from a long-standing Christian tradition but it's more recent yeah. um but but what, whatever it may be, it seems that there are, there are now um, sort of intellectual trends that are happening within the zeitgeist of the U.S., which, which uh, are, are just a lot more sort of vague and confused in terms of, uh, in terms of what philosophical tradition they're, they're coming from. Um, and as a result, uh, it seems to me at least that the sort of uh, philosophical, social, political discourse in, in the U.S., is just uh, sort of tied up in knots because um, no one really knows what their values are or where they come from. Um so a, can you tell me whether or not that's true if if you if that is your um, perception as well? And then can you also maybe say something about what it's like to be an educator in that kind of environment?
1: Uh, i I think, I think you're right. Um, That there is a a sort of a a fundamental problem in American social and political discourse and that the roots um, do come from a a, a difference of values, right? Because we, we no longer seem to be able to talk about the subjective things in part because we don't even agree on objective things either. And I'll give an example of what I mean. My son is now six feet tall, but when he was much younger, about seven years ago, I had a student um, who was 6'10". He was a volleyball player, right? And to my student, Matt, I was short at 5'8". And my son at the time was like four feet tall, and he thought I was tall. But no one can dispute that I'm 5'8", right? And... What I find when, we, when I look at uh, political discussions and disputes in American life today is that we can't even agree that I'm 5'8 anymore. Do, do you see, do you see the, the point I'm trying to make? Is that when I hear political commentators uh, and I hear different news outlets, um, both on the left and the right the facts that are put forward don't match they they often don't match and so i think that that in part the the fact that that we have uh journalists and news outlets and and opinion writers who can come forward with different facts actually comes from a weird idea that a lot of Americans have—that um, everybody's opinion is equally valid, and that morality is fundamentally relative. Okay. Um, because because if yeah. th- th- there there comes a moment where I think that a uh, belief that being value neutral is good, eventually we can't even judge the objective truth of any claim. Right. And that's that's and I see that in education, because when I ask questions about morality, I'll have students say, well, I mean, that's just relative. And I use this kind of silly example, right, where if morality is, in fact, relative, if it's just a matter of what you think and there's really nothing beyond that, why is it that if I am cruel to a student, everyone agrees that that's wrong or even more kind of silly, if I take a student's bag, because it's a really nice backpack, and they say, give it back, I'll say, look, in my moral framework, it's okay to take what you want, right? And if you take it back from me, you can have it, right? But I just think that taking what you want is the way to go, and that is a morally good thing. No one is gonna say, oh, damn, that's a great point, we, uh, morality is just a matter of opinion. It's all relative. That's a good point. I have no reason to demand it back from you without taking it from you. I have no, I have no reason to say that what you did was incorrect and you should give it back without me having to coerce you. Right. And that suggests to me that we actually operate with an idea that there are some morally right things and morally wrong things. And I, I, I think that this idea that morality is relative um has led us to a place where even facts are relative because well, in the united can I, can states I, can, yeah can I, can I stop you for for a sure. second um
0: uh, i, I do want to get to the second half of what you were saying um okay so there there are a number of things here that i want to address let's let's first get to the the moral question then let's get back to like the empirical facts question sure
1: um
0: so so first of all i mean personally i am inclined uh towards there not being an objective morality in the sense that other um in, in in the in the terms of there being objective empirical facts. Uh, so for example, like I, I think that the the truth of morality is a different kind of truth if you want to use the word truth is a different kind of truth than the truth of of Newton's laws or or the laws of quantum mechanics or whatever. Agreed. Agreed. Um, right and and I think that, that also so moral relativism there is there is like cultural relativism and then there's sort of like um I, I don't know what the word but like moral moral nihilism and those i think are different views right so you can you can believe so like one, one view could be that within a culture right it, it is important for all of us to observe the moral laws of our culture for, for you know, social contract-related reasons, or for, um, either uh, or or for selfish reasons, um, in in the sense that like, okay, we well we've, we've built this this society and people are expected to behave a certain way, and we've also built it and we've also have a built-in mechanism where people who don't follow the rules, um, you know are are censored, um, and and are punished. So you could have students who, who think that, you know, taking the student's bag or being cruel to a student is wrong, um, and and they'll be upset about that without rejecting the possibility of cultural relativism. Because it could just be that, right, like within your culture, that's not acceptable, but maybe in, in some other culture, um, it might be okay. Um, I, I think mo- most of us have a stronger sense of morality than that.
1: Right, but I, I guess I guess I would I guess I would say that like name name a culture in which that behavior is okay. Um, where where it's not just like people it's tolerated, but rather that's a fact. You you know the, the the moral facts on the ground are, people simply say, "Hey, you took that by force. Awesome. That's the way we do things."
0: Um. Yeah, okay, so, well, the victim is never happy, um, because, right, so, so,
1: so, but but, but the question, the question isn't, is the victim happy? The question is, 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 like, does that mean anything? You know, does that have any significance? You know, I mean, or do we say, like, well, there's something fundamentally wrong about that behavior? Not the unhappiness, Right. But rather right. the, the coercive taking of property.
0: Right. So I, I mean like my 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 take on on our moral sensibilities at least follow um, Jonathan Haidt's work. I don't I don't know if you're familiar with um with like the righteous mind and things like that. I'm, I'm not. Um, um. But the the idea is that uh, that because we're social animals, so we do have some sort of innate um, sense of Moral reasoning, and that moral reasoning doesn't just encompass um, those sorts of things, like uh, you know where you're clearly impinging on someone else's uh, property rights or person or things like that. Uh, but there are also aspects of, let's say, um, uh, respecting authority, or um, uh, you know purity, uh, or sanctity, or or uh, or thing or. Those sorts of things. So, like, to some people, you know, uh, say like disrespecting your nation's flag is like a huge, um, you know, a huge no-no. Um, or my professor once once told me a story that he had uh, Japanese students, and he offered them a ride in his car because, uh, and and uh, for at least uh, for those for those students in the culture that they were brought up in, the idea of like a professor offering students to take a ride in in his car was like completely forbidden like it was a violation of the social of the of the social hierarchy of like a teacher and his students um you know so the, so there might be some things that are that are universal um but i i it it is hard to sort of find the minimal set of universals that don't have um uh, they don't have exceptions somewhere. Uh, and so it, it's a little bit hard to tease apart. Okay, so so what is, like, really universal? Uh, and what is, like, exists in, you know, 90% of societies, but, you know, really, if it was different, it was okay. So, like, one example is, is for example, uh, Polly Polyandry, Right? So, um, in – there's this book, uh, Moral Animal. I mean, there are other people who write about it, that he wasn't the first. Um, but basically if you do like an anthropological survey of a bunch of different cultures, so it turns out that, um, polygyny, so one man having multiple wives, is fairly common. You have that in like 900 out of a thousand cultures, whereas polyandry, right? One woman having multiple husbands, um, you find in maybe like 80 or something like that. So if you're, if you're just to sort of take an empirical approach to like what is okay and what isn't in the realm of like polyamory, uh, so you would say, well, it's okay for you know a man to have multiple wives, but not for a woman to have multiple husbands. Um, and and in at least in contemporary Western society, most of our society thinks that polygamy in general is frowned upon. There are some small enclaves in you know San Francisco or whatever where it's more common. Um, so I I just think. Uh, there, there is a lot of complexity there, especially when you look at the the anthropological literature.
1: Yeah, I mean there, there is complexity and I guess I guess the point that I was trying to make before and the point that I tried to make to my students is not so much that I know what anyone believes, but that it's a unhelpful and actually intellectually dishonest suggestion that we really believe that morality is just a matter of opinion and that all moral values are relative. I'm not saying that they aren't. I'm saying that we don't actually believe that, right? Because everybody is going to fight for their views and their rights as they see them. Because if we really believed, if we really believed that all, all moral values have equal, equal validity, Right, then we would not object when people do things that we consider immoral.
0: Right. So, so just, just to, so it, so it's, it's an interesting claim that you're making, which, which I think I agree with, which is that ob- objective morality may not exist in some cosmic sense, but there, there is no one who actually behaves as though objective morality doesn't exist, except for like sociopaths.
1: Right, right? So and, that's, and, and that's the thing, right, is that, is that if we're having difficulty talking about what values we have or would like to have or shouldn't have, if, if that idea is in your mind that all moral values are actually relative, you can't have that argument, you know. You can't even have that discussion because you're you're engaging in a seemingly meaningless discussion about values, and oh. we don't really live that way. Okay, so so let's. By the way, how much how
0: much time do you have? I've got about twenty five minutes. Okay, um, so in in the remaining twenty five minutes, um, I I would like you to, to both um yeah I wa- I wanted to get to the the issue of facts also mm-hmm. um but maybe maybe we'll uh we'll take okay so for for the next uh five to ten minutes could could you could you say a little bit about um uh like what what you think should be the values that uh that students in America should be imparted with uh and and what, what what sort of confusions that you see in society specifically um, do you want to be tackled, and how do you want to see them be be resolved? You know again, thinking thinking as an educator, okay i'm I'm bringing students into these crazy worlds, and I want my students to make the world a little bit less crazy. so so how do you go about doing that, and what is the the lack of craziness that ensues looks like?
1: Um you know i'm 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 essentially i have grown into a philosopher um one of the things that i say when people ask me to introduce myself um if if i think that i'm introducing myself to a community or a person um in a kind of non trivial way you know that that we're going to be in relationship and i want them to know something about me is that i say um i'm a teacher and the sign on the door says English, but really I teach philosophy. And that's what I... I mean, it might sound naive, it might sound elitist, but it's really not. Um, I think that the fundamental way forward is to teach philosophy. Um, And philosophy is not, it doesn't have to be uh, reading Kant, you know, or reading Hegel, uh, or, or any of the things that academic philosophy takes as its bread and butter. The fundamental stance of philosophy, in my opinion, is a wrestling with what is the case, what is not the case, um, how does it affect us, and 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 what are we going to do about it? Uh, and that's I, I really do think that if if we were to uh, go all the way down, uh, you know, to to the machine code, as it were, of my teaching, that's really what I'm doing. And I don't think that most students in the United States and in um, and in and in other educational systems that are like the United States ever have that asked of them you know when i taught there was a, there was a school that i taught at once that my freshmen i taught freshmen and juniors and my freshmen who were at the sort of middle level because they were in three tracks, the freshmen who were in the middle level were very typical students. They were all boys. Um, and in that sense, they weren't typical because students aren't all boys, but uh, they they understood the value of certain things and they mostly wanted to screw around with their friends. My I also taught the lowest level, the lowest achieving freshmen, and all they really wanted to do was worksheets. They begged for worksheets because it's what they understood. And I think that that actually is a really interesting window into what um, what American education is like. It is that we are many in many instances we are tracked early on. Uh, we get told as students that you are smarter, you are not. Uh, And most of American education, especially in the early grades, seems to be a very rote and repetitive engagement with a specific set of content and skills. And I think that we need to teach philosophical thinking, not necessarily critical thinking the way we think of it, but philosophical thinking early on. And there are some people who are never taught to think philosophically. And I think that those people are handicapped when it comes to interacting with the, the the sort of political world that we that we find ourselves in. And that's that's really what I think we need to do is we need to have uh, ethical, philosophical education, and it needs to be an important part of what we do. And mm-hmm. and the world that I hope that that will create is a world that, in terms of the way people go about their lives, is maddeningly diverse. Uh, that that people look around and they see that the that other people's, other families, other person's ways of doing things are really different from their own. But they never think of that state of affairs as being a fundamental threat to their decisions. Because that's part of what I see today, is that we, we think that other people's ways of life... And ways of being, even if there are anecdotal or quantifiable indications that there is something good going on in that way of being in that state of affairs, that it's it's mere existence is a threat to my freedom and my and, and my ability to go about my life.
0: Right. So this this is strange to me um just to to take the last part because of what you were saying earlier about cuz you you were sort of coming off um with with having sort of a strong view of of morality uh and then you're ending up in sort of this place where we're saying that the the result should be um that people will look at the diversity of uh, of views and moral positions uh, and whatnot that that other people have, and not judge them and not feel like they are encroaching on your own. And I I think that I I understand where that comes from, and I I do think that that um, to to be to build a successful society, you have to have a balance between having strong moral views of your own and also being tolerant of. Um, Views of of the other, uh, but but I I think that ultimately, uh, you know, there there does seem seem to be a little of a, a bit of a contradiction there. I mean, maybe maybe the the approach is that that you have to sort of critically examine what your own beliefs are because your 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 own moral beliefs are probably not perfectly relativistic, and the once once you understand that you have your own. Sort of moral sensibilities that, that you feel you feel strongly about, then then you can go and say, ah, but I but I also know that really deep down my moral values are to some degree personal to me. And if I see someone who has values that are different from mine, that doesn't mean that they're uh, a threat to me. Um, but it, it is it is sort of though dancing with one tohas at two chasanas, right?
1: Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean the, the one of the things that i you know um when when I talk about some of my you know my political beliefs, uh which we haven't really touched on and I don't really want to talk about, um sometimes people will say, well, that seems a little bit extreme and unrealistic, right, and I'll often respond with, I'm not saying that these beliefs are implementable, right. My hope is that in part, simply by holding them and espousing them when relevant to the conversation, it might make people think. And it might create some good simply by opening the the realm of possibilities. And I think that, and this is the bridge between, um, you know, that, that maybe makes my my various claims less contradictory, is that the bridge is that the reason why people uh, don't believe, they have this weird idea about moral relativism, right? And, and yet are threatened by diversity is precisely because we don't engage in ethical discourse ever anymore. And, and if we did that from the beginning, Right. Then from from very early on, I think we would be better off as individuals and as a society. But instead, uh, the, the, the climate that has been created today uh, and has been kind of created in various iterations for a long time in the United States, probably for at least, you know, uh, 70 to 90 years has been one where there's an us and them and th- there is an insurmountable difference between us and i just don't think that that's true you know i i think in practice uh most humans agree on way more than they disagree on and and we we uh as societies we almost prevent ourselves uh from engaging in any honest discussion precisely because of this you know um kind of seemingly insurmountable uh ga- chasm between different value systems which i think is not a chasm it's usually more like a small gutter you know it's a small space um but then we act as if it's you know that there's no common ground when in fact there's quite a lot
0: mm-hmm. um so okay so i i want to to get um to the point about um objective and uh, empirical facts uh in In the few minutes that we have left and and i'll I'll do a little bit more talking at this point i'll I think I'll do five minutes and you'll do five five minutes response or something like sure. that um okay so so essentially my my take as a person who is now part of the scientific world in a very um deep way in the sense that i'm I'm a graduate student in neuroscience um I routinely go to conferences I talk with scientists who are at the cutting edge of their field. Um, and I like, I know, I know how the sausage is made and I, I know sort of how science works. Um, and in, in a sense, the, as, as a scientist, you hardly ever come across something which is like a fact. Um, and, and I think that that is how science is often taught to younger students um, but in fact, my engagement with science as a scientist is that, is that science is sort of this ongoing dialogue with experimental results in theory and, and, um, and this back and forth. Uh, and my, my sort of aphorism is that uh, figures are facts and, and words are opinions uh, in the sense that uh, you do an experiment and you get data and you plot the data on a graph. Um, right, so whatever, whatever the, the data points are on the graph, that is the data that, that you obtained, that, that is what is actually there. And anything beyond that involves a certain amount of sort of um, interpolation uh, or interpretation, um, extrapolation, uh, and so forth. Um, now, it, it happens to be that via this process, there are certain statements which, uh, from an instrumental standpoint, uh, very much to seem to be seem to be true in the sense that they they sort of will predict um, the the result if you were to repeat the experiment, um, and and uh, there's a lot of things that we can be confident about because of course they have produced uh, technologies um, which which demonstrate the proof of concept. Um, but I, I think that uh, I, I just I, I, I question the wisdom of speaking about science in terms of facts as opposed to being, uh, you know, this sort of ongoing dialogue. And I think that to the extent that people have issues with science, it's it's not because people have a problem with facts. I think that. Uh, I I think it's more that people have, um, an institutional problem with a, the, the scientific academy, um, and B with the media, which, which often reports on scientific findings as if they are, they are fact when, when in fact they are, um, you know, results of small experiments that might not be replicable. Um, and I, I think that a lot of, a lot of uh, institutional distrust of science has been created due to the fact that um, uh, often a, a, at least the media portrays certain certain things in science as, as being more um, certain than we actually are, and then it, it becomes sort of a boy who cried wolf phenomenon, and, and people start believing us when we really uh, are um, pretty confident about things. Um, so yeah so I, I think that um yeah so so in summary I, I would say that I think that uh it's it's a problem with uh um people are skeptical of institutions. Uh, and I also think that if people are introduced to the language of science, and I'm I'm specifically thinking about the language of um of probability and statistics and causal reasoning um and uh things that we do in, in machine learning i think that people don't even have the vocabulary to talk about things that we're not sure of um and in in science um especially if you're know, like if you're in the world of like machine learning and artificial intelligence and statistics everything is probabilistic right and so instead of having a need to say that something is true or false uh we we are um, comfortable with saying, "Well, I think that this is, you know, this has a thirty percent chance of being true, or something like that." And I think that that kind of thinking would be very helpful um, to our to our political discourse. Um, I don't know how you feel about that.
1: I mean, I, f- I feel part. I feel like part of what you're talking about is just. a a certain kind of scientific literacy, a certain kind of understanding um, what science is and what science isn't, um, which I think would be extremely useful. Um, But when I talk about facts, um, I'm reminded of this idea that a non-trivial number of Americans, for example, still believe that President Barack Obama is a Muslim. Um, th- that is not a fact in in the sense of a figure. It certainly isn't, but there is a way to verify, right, whether or not that is true.
0: I uh, so yeah, and, I, and, I, I and, okay. and
1: and those and and we dispute about these things. You know, and I don't understand why, you know, because and, and, and the, the only thing that I can come up with is that we don't have the same facts anymore. And I don't know what I, I and to some extent, I don't know how to fix that, you know, except that, um, you know, going back to kind of where we started, which is that, you know, if if there is. a greater encouragement of uh discursive practice right and real philosophical thinking you wouldn't conclude that things that are not true are true right and and that true things are false i mean and we we have that all the time in politics so
0: so i i think especially with with the example of obama being a muslim so i would counter that 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 is actually another example of institutional distrust rather than a question of discursive reasoning. Because the thing is, so I've, I've never met Obama and most people haven't. Um, And most people don't know him well enough to know, to have a deep sense of like what his private beliefs are. Um, So all of us are sort of relying on institutions like the media to convey um, information about about our political figures, right? So, so I think that, and and this is especially with Obama, the Muslim thing. I mean, this is this is pretty explicit in um, conservative media, right? That there there's sort of a distrust about how um, how the mainstream media is trying to portray um people like like Obama and and that in fact this is sort of a, a propagandist narrative um and that the conservatives uh, know know the real deal and that there are um sort of uh you know that there is there is ulterior information which is not being uh conveyed. Which and if, if we lived in um in Russia or Iran or you know in Haredi Orthodox society, right, these kinds of claims about the about media reporting would be, would be plausible because uh, we would have more distrust of the media institutions, right? So if you're a conservative and you feel that the media is very liberally slanted, so again, I, I think it's a, that at least partially um, is a question of, um, yeah, institutional trust.
1: Th- that may be true I mean it, it may be that we have you know problems with trusting institutions and it may be that we have I mean what I would suggest is that if we if we distrust our institutions then there must be a problem with those institutions I would but agree that and and it's possible um, that if we have it's possible that the very problem is in the institutions that we trust, right that 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 we have put our trust in um, systematically, fundamentally malfunctioning institutions, you know, and I mean, I, I would include schools in that, you know that that our our schools are are malfunctioning. And as a consequence, people distrust education. Um, and the problem isn't education, but the institutions that we trust.
0: Yeah. Um. Okay. By 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 your own statement, you have uh, you have two minutes left, I think.
1: Yes. Um. I mean, I. I think. I mean the the. the 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 only thing I I would say on this is that I don't, I'm not sure if there was ever really a time when people believed things with the certainty that we think they did Um, or that there was a uniformity of belief of any kind across societies, but The situation that we have today, whether we like it or not, is one where we're not sure of the validity of anything. And we, as a global society, need to find a way where we don't, where we remember that the That when Nietzsche said, God is dead, that wasn't the last thing that was said in that statement. The quotation has a few more words. The quotation in that book is, God is dead and we have killed him. And if God is dead and we have killed him, then we need to start building up some commonly held beliefs again. And if we don't, then this kind of conflict is just going to perpetuate itself. And we need to, we need to find some common ground. Did you just um, fact check me on that quote? No. Cause I remember
0: there, there's, there's even more to that quote. Oh, there is, is. there is even. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah uh, I mean, right. there, I mean, it goes on for a while. Right. But, but like, the the no. statement doesn't end with dead. The, no, the, but, 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 the singular but the, statement. Yeah. And it could, no, it but. goes on. There's like a whole paragraph after that. Right. It's, no,
0: just because just the rest of the quote is also very powerful, right? It's, how shall yeah. we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What yeah. was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe the blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonements, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, if, 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 if it makes sense to talk again, you know, soon, I mean, I'm happy to to talk again, especially with some of the, the technical issues at the beginning with some audio problems. I mean, I'd be happy to to you know, talk again at some, some other date soon.
0: Uh, Sure. I'd definitely be open to that. Um, sure. Meanwhile, it has been great having you on um, and I hope to get this up on, onto the internet at some point in the near future. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, me too. Okay. Talk to you later.
1: Talk to you later. All right. Bye.